If you have a Bible with you, open up to Ephesians chapter 5. And if not, that's all right. You can follow along on the screen with us today. Ephesians chapter 5 will be there in verses 22 through 33 a little bit uh, later on in the sermon. But first, we are continuing our series called Home Life. And so we're looking at uh, all the different dynamics of what makes up our home life and how we are called to glorify God in our personal lives when we're not at work, not at school, not here at church, but in our homes. What does that look like? And so we're really looking at very topical issues and, and subjects as we go through this. And so today is no different. Uh, today we're going to tackle the uh, subject of marriage. So before we get into that, let me pray and we will dive right in. Lord Jesus, again, we are so thankful for your grace. We're thankful that you have called us by name to be here today, to be followers of you, Lord, to listen to your word. And I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would speak truth deep into our hearts today. Lord, regardless of what season of life or stage someone may be in, I pray that your word would reign supreme in our hearts and would truly uh, cut us deeply and transform our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for giving us your word. Lord, it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, the wedding industry is a giant industry. Uh, for many couples who are engaged, they spend months and months of preparation uh, getting ready for that big day, that wedding day, and all the people and all the invitations and the food and the dresses and the suits and all these things are just so well prepared for and thousands and thousands of dollars are usually spent on these kinds of weddings and to the point where the bride and the groom, after they say I do and walk out of the uh, facility where they got married, they probably look at each other and say, boy, I'm glad that's over. Whew. Yeah, that was the hard part, right? Well, we know, right, if you, if you are married here today, you know that that is really just the beginning. The wedding is not the finish line, though it may feel that way to a young couple. The wedding is the starting line. And so you know that if, you, if you're married, you know that as you go through your marriage, it's not always going to be easy. You know, my wife Christy and I, we... We had a small wedding on the beach, and uh, we did not spend much money at all. And we don't regret that, you know, because here we are, you know, many years later, and we have what I would say is a great marriage. I mean, you want to maybe double check with her after the service, but uh, <laughs> it's joyful. It's good. We're best friends. We love each other. And, you know, but we'd be the first to admit and the first to tell you that marriage is difficult, it's not always easy. It's not a fairy tale story like we see in the movies or Hallmark Channel. What a terrible channel. Anyways, <laughs> but here's what we know as Christians. As Christians, one of our most fundamental beliefs is that humanity is sinful, which means that we have chosen to live according to what we think is good for us, instead of according to what God says is good, his design for our lives. And every human heart is deeply corrupted by this sin problem. Look at what Psalm chapter 14, verses 2 and 3 says. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, the scriptures are very clear all throughout, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that we as, hum as humans, we have a problem. We don't love and worship God the way we're called to, and it reflects in the way we live our lives. So when a man and a woman, both with this serious sin problem in their hearts, both ultimately living for themselves, who, when, when those two people, when they decide to live together under the same roof for the rest of their lives in what we call a marriage, I mean, what could go wrong? Marriage is a joy, but marriage is also difficult. It's both. But the reason it's difficult is because, like everything else in this world, it has become corrupted by the powerful presence of sin in the human heart. And so, even outside of a biblical perspective, our society at large today agrees that marriage is difficult. Statistics seem to indicate it doesn't matter as much as it once did. I read an interesting, or I skimmed an interesting article, a very long article, so I looked through and it was very interesting. Uh, David Brooks wrote an article a couple years ago in The Atlantic. And I noticed these statistics, and so I want to share them with you. He said, over the past two generations... People have spent less and less time in marriage. They are marrying later, if at all, and divorcing more. In 1950, 1950, 27% of marriages ended in divorce. Today, about 45% do. In 1960, 72% of American adults were married. In 2017, nearly half of American adults were single. Pew Research says that since 1995, the percentage of American adults who are married has declined by 5%, while those living together and not married has risen 4%. Add to that, in 2015, same-sex marriage became legal in all 50 states. So when you look at these statistics and you look at what's happening in our culture, there is a vast disconnect in our society today between what God has designed marriage to be versus what our culture has tried to redesign it to become. So as Christians, as followers of Jesus living in the, the middle of this secularized American culture, you see, the question for us is, if you're not married, then how will you support God's design for marriage in conversations you have with your friends, uh, as you pray for your married friends, how will you pray for them and their marriages, or maybe you are looking to the day you become married, how will you prepare for that according to God's design? And if you are married here today, then the question is, how will you pursue that design in your marriage? So whether you're single or divorced or widowed or married, this sermon is really for everybody because this sermon, as we're going to see, is really not just about marriage. It's about the gospel. And so what I want us to do today is look at the topic of marriage as we all in our different seasons of life think about this idea that's happening in our world, right, this concept of marriage I want us all to be able to articulate God's design for marriage. So we're going to look at three different angles, the design, the disconnect, and the challenge. 
the design, the disconnect, and the challenge, all right? So what is the design? What is God's design for marriage? Well, really, marriage is all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you may say, excuse me just a minute here, my headset's coming loose. That's the popping noise you hear. So the design for marriage is that marriage is about the gospel. So understand this today. If you are married, your marriage, this is really encouraging, okay? Your marriage is primarily not about you. And now you may think it is, or you may want it to be, but your marriage is designed to point to something greater than you and your spouse. The reason is this. From the very beginning of time, with the first marriage, which was Adam and Eve, Ben just read a portion of that ceremony to you in the scripture reading, God's intention all along was for marriage to be a demonstration of what he is like and of his love. That's what marriage is really about. The gospel is not about marriage. Marriage is about the gospel. The marriage that you are in is created and designed by God himself, so it belongs to him. He's the inventor of it. The marriage that you may be in today, if you are married, it is designed to point other people to something about God himself, to show them the love of God. Now, I want to explain why that is. I, I preached a sermon last year uh, as we went through First Peter last spring, and I, I want to share some of that with you again today because it's, it's very important for us to understand this. Now, first of all, let, let's go all the way back to the beginning of time. I know we haven't got to Ephesians 5 yet, but we got to go back, way back. All right, so the very beginning of your Bibles in Genesis chapter 1, we see when God created the first man and the first woman, here's what the scriptures tell us about that moment when God created a man and a woman in Genesis 1.27. It tells us, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So men and women both equally reflect the character of God by being made in his image. Do you see that? Adam and Eve both equally, 100% reflect and are built with the innate character image of God in themselves, the ability to reflect his character, I should say. And so then what that means is that man and woman, one is not inferior to the other in any way. One is not better than the other in any way. So then God took this man, Adam, and he took this first woman, Eve, and he conducted a wedding ceremony. And it was an amazing venue, and they didn't have to pay a dime, right? So now, so now you have two people, a husband and a wife. And so now the question is, how will this marriage survive? How will they need to treat one another for this marriage to be God-honoring and healthy? Well, to answer that question in our modern-day world as Christians... Today, living after Jesus came to the earth to die for our sins in our place on the cross, one of the best places to turn for instruction on this topic is Ephesians chapter 5. So now look with me 
Ephesians 5, I want to read verses 22 through 33 in its entirety as one passage as it's meant to be read instead of breaking it down too much as we go. But then we'll talk about it at the end, all right? So here's what Paul, the Apostle Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus, okay? And he's saying these things about marriage. He says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, in our modern non-Christian culture that we live in, there are some very controversial statements in that passage. But before we get to those, if you were following along closely, did you notice this? The words Christ and church are in this passage a combined 11 times. Christ and his church, 11 times. Now that should be a great clue as to what's really going on here. As the Apostle Paul is talking about the roles of husbands and wives in a marriage, why does he keep talking about the church? Why does he keep talking about Christ? Paul is telling us that marriage is designed by God himself to show humanity what God is like. Now, that's not the only way, that uh, the only thing or institution that God has designed to show us what he is like. Every single human has the capacity and the ability to reflect the character and image of God and point others to the gospel, whether you are married or not. But in the specific context of marriage, that is really the purpose of it, to reflect the truth of the gospel and who God is. Now you, have, you maybe, and maybe you have, but I'm just going to guess that many people have never thought about their marriage that way. That that's really the purpose. You're like, I thought the purpose was just to kind of have fun and survive, right? <laughs> no, the purpose is so much greater than what our little minds can comprehend. Have you ever thought of it that way? Your marriage is designed to reflect truth about God himself? This is amazing. 
Theologian Richard Koken says this, and this is just so good. Listen to this. Since God, he says, since God is three equal persons, right? So we believe, we affirm the Trinity. We can't fully explain it. We can't comprehend the greatness of God. But we affirm that the scriptures teach that God is one. There is one God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So since God is three equal persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, he says God designed us for marriages in which husbands and wives are equally dignified. In other words, God the Father is no greater than God the Son. God the Son is no greater than God the Holy Spirit. They are three distinct persons, yet they are equally God. There is one God. So since God is diverse and complementary, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit play different roles, right? They don't all do the same things. God has created the relationship of marriage to be diverse and wonderfully complementary. So where a man is weak, a woman is strong. Where a woman is weak, a man is strong. God designed us that way to complement one another. He says, since God's Trinity is ordered with God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, gladly submitting to God the Father's will. Remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? He's praying to God the Father, and what does he say? Not my will, but thine be done. I mean, he's equal with God. Jesus is God. But he's praying to the Father and submitting in that moment, right? And so as the Trinity is ordered, God the Father, so he, ha he has designed all human relationships, including marriage, with authority exercised lovingly and submission given gladly without any implication of superiority or inferiority. So, when we start to look at how Jesus himself submits to the Father but is equal with the Father, and we begin to see how Jesus lays down his life for his bride, the church, when we look at both of those dynamics, we see how marriage is designed to reflect who God is in the gospel. I love how Kathy Keller points out that both husbands and wives are looking to Jesus for their example. She says both women and men get to play the Jesus role in marriage. Jesus in his sacrificial authority, husbands, that's you, Jesus in his sacrificial submission. Wives, that's you. So, so look again then in Ephesians 5. If you look at verse 25, Paul tells husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let me read that again. Husbands. Do whatever you want. Rule over your wives. Tell them what to do. Sit back and relax and don't be the spiritual leader in your family. Just sit back in your recliner while your wife takes the kids to church and you stay home. Or begrudgingly go to church with your wife because she thinks it's important for the family. Husbands, do those things. That's not what it says. It says, husbands, love your wives. How? How, God, do you want husbands? How do you want us to love our wives? Oh, he's very clear. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, husbands, I'm just going to talk to you for a minute. So wives, you can cheer this on, all right? 
How did Christ love the church? He died for her, his bride, us. We are the bride of Christ, the church. Jesus, Jesus laid down his life. He was in the eternal glories of heaven. He had all the riches of heaven. And yet he chose to come to this nasty, smelly, stinky earth, tainted and corrupted by sin and sinful humanity. He chose not just to come here on a rescue mission, but to become one of us so that he could walk in our shoes, so that he could experience the pain and the suffering and the sorrow himself and bear that weight and bear that burden on himself so that when the time came, he could live a perfect life and die in our place as a perfect, sinless substitute before a holy God the Father, the judge of all. Jesus the Son submitted to the Father in that way and sacrificially loved his bride, loved his people, and laid down his life. Giving up the comforts of this world, he laid down his life for our sake, for our salvation, for our interests. He put our interests ahead of his own. That is not weakness. That is strength, men. Laying down your life every little day in a thousand little ways, laying down and setting aside your wants and your desires and your comforts, that is spiritual leadership. Leading your family to love the Lord and grow in faith and seek the Lord's will for your life, not your, not your financial will, first and foremost, not the betterment of all your fun and vacations, first and foremost, but what does God want from this family? Asking that question and being the first to get out of bed on Sunday morning to say, we're going to church because this family, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That that is spiritual leadership, husbands, and that is what the Bible is asking. That's what Paul is saying here in Ephesians 5. It is in that way. It is under that kind of loving, sacrificial context that the husband is commanded to be the spiritual leader of the home, and it's in that kind of sacrificial leadership, mirroring the servant-like leadership of Jesus himself, that the wife can voluntarily and gladly submit to that kind of leadership. That is a joy. The wife loves the husband. The husband loves the wife. They complement each other in these ways God designed. And so as we start to understand the purpose of marriage, it's not, it's not romance. That's part of it, but that's not it. It's not just having good teamwork and good chemistry. That might be part of it, but that's not it. It's not good compromise. It's not about your kids. When we start to realize what it's really about, we can start to see why distinct God-given roles for husbands and wives are good. Because they point each other to God. They point each other to Jesus. And they point an unbelieving world to the sacrificial love of Christ. Now, that may not set well with today's culture, but that's God's design for marriage, whether you like it or approve of it or not. God is the inventor of marriage. 
And so marriage truly belongs to him, and so he gets to determine how it should function. That's the design. Where's the disconnect? That's the ideal picture, right? But where are we actually living in our homes? The disconnect is our marriages fall short of that design, and the reason is because of sin. You see, like other topics we've already covered in this series, living in a broken world corrupted by sin, we are going to feel the tension. It's real, right? Between God's design and what we actually experience in our marriages. But what's the ultimate reason for that? Well, there's lots of opinions. There's lots of books at Barnes & Noble that you can find. There's a million internet articles that you could look at and try to figure out what's wrong with my marriage. But the one main reason... The one main culprit, the one main thing that is causing problems in your marriage today, if you're married, is this. It's simple. It's a three-letter word. It's sin. Sin. That's it. Now, I don't want to oversimplify problems, and hear me out. I am not trying to undermine how much difficulty you may experience. But biblically speaking, we know that the ultimate culprit of any problems in a marriage is going to be our own sin, my sin. No, not her sin, not his sin, your sin. You see, one of Satan's oldest tricks is to get God's people to think that what God has in store for them is not enough, right? I mean, we see that play out in all kinds of arenas of our lives. Well, my car is not nice enough. It's not new enough, right? My house is not big enough. You know, hey, what about a boat, right? I mean, we start thinking like we need more. We need more. We need something other than what God's given us for true contentment. We start to believe that temptation. And that was the very temptation in the Garden of Eden at the beginning of time. It's really the same old trick today. Satan gets us to think, you know what? I think something's wrong with my spouse. I think, I think she's the problem. It's not me. It couldn't be me, right? And so you start to think that you need something better or you need something more in life. And sin, what it does then is that mentality, that mindset always puts the blame on others. Our spouse. Just like Adam blamed Eve. When God confronted Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden after they had sinned against him, after they had taken the fruit and eaten of it, as God told them not to do. What did, what did Adam say to God? Look at this in Genesis chapter 3. The man said, after God said, is questioning what's going on, right? The man said, oh, it was the woman. You see that? I mean, there it is. Since the beginning of time, husbands, we've been blaming our wives, right? The woman made me do it, right? The woman who you gave me, right, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Wow, what a coward. Hang on, wives. Your time's coming, right? Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, uh, it was the snake, right? The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Finger pointing, finger pointing, finger pointing. It's never my fault. There's lots of things you may think are destructive to your marriage. Maybe you think, well, we're just not compatible anymore. Maybe you think, you know, we just don't have the same interests. And you may say something like, well, we've grown apart over the years. Or our schedules are too busy. He works too much. But what the people of God, and let me say, there may be some truth in some of those statements, okay? I'm not denying that. But what the people of God, 
What we need to know is that all of our problems in life, married or not, all of our problems originate from the same problem, a common problem, and that's our own sinful desires to love and worship ourselves instead of God. That's the problem. Sin is destructive to our marriages because it keeps the focus on me and what I think I need and what I want. It keeps those self-interests just constantly bubbling to the surface of the conversations and the words I use to my wife. It is a selfish intent that lingers and takes a stronghold if you don't check it, which is exactly opposite of what the example of Jesus is. It's the exact opposite of what the gospel teaches us, what Christ did for us, that he laid down his life, that he gave up his wants and desires and interests so that you could have yours for all eternity. That's what marriage is designed to reflect, self-sacrificial love, and so we feel that disconnect. It's real. So that leaves us with the third and final angle I want to look at today with marriage, and that's the challenge. And this is really only a challenge for those of you who claim to be followers of Jesus, because what I mean is the world doesn't care about the design, right? So the world shoves the design aside and says, We're, we'll figure it out. But as Christians, we should be smarter than that because we know God has revealed ultimate truth, absolute truth to us. And so he's given us his truth of what he has shaped reality to be. And so we see his design we see and feel the tension in our own marriages or in our friend's marriage. We see in the culture, if you're single, it doesn't matter, whatever. Wherever you see marriage, the disconnect, we all feel that tension in our world today. And so the challenge then is to redemptively pursue that design that God originally made. How do we do that? Now, you may be, you may be single sitting here thinking, this all sounds kind of terrible. Um, and it's not. And I don't mean to be pessimistic, but maybe you're married, and the reality is you feel the weight. You feel that weight. You know that burden and that strain that sin has caused in your marriage, and it is no laughing matter. So this all begs the question, is a healthy Christian Christ... Is a healthy Christ-centered marriage really possible? Or is this just all wishful thinking? Well, the answer to that depends on who you're looking to for your strength and your power to move forward. To quote Richard Koken again, he says, all of this, all of this about marriage is hugely challenging. But in Christ, there is never-ending forgiveness for our failures and strength to keep trying. In Christ, there is something called forgiveness of sin. You see, if you look to your spouse for the strength you need in your marriage, if you look to your spouse and you put that pressure on them to somehow give you the power and the strength to continue on, it will not work who you will either be, you will either be disappointed 
when they can't provide it, or you will crush them with your unrealistic expectations and pressure that you're putting on them. But there's good news, and the good news is if we don't make marriage about ourselves or about what we can get out of our spouse, yet we are both simultaneously looking to Christ, to the one who designed marriage in the first place, who showed perfect love by putting himself through the ultimate darkness and pain and suffering, by voluntarily submitting to the Father's will, by laying aside his glory so he could better serve our interests, by absorbing our wrongs upon himself so he could forgive us our debt by laying down his life so he could show us perfect, sacrificial love. If both spouses in a marriage are looking to Christ as that example for how to love one another, then God will give you the strength to carry on. If you're drawing your strength from him, right? So for the Christian, listen, marriage is an ongoing fight. And I don't mean like a fight like, hey, what did you say? Right? Not that. Not amongst yourselves. Marriage is an ongoing fight, get this, with yourself. Marriage is an ongoing fight with your own inner heart and your own sinful self. So just like any area of life, what must we do? Well, the key to a happy marriage, it's it's not just, hey, try these five things. It's this, admit your sin. Admit your selfishness. Confess your sin and your pride. Repent, turn away from it. Trust that what Jesus has for you is good enough, that he is good enough. And embrace God's forgiveness and forgive as you've been forgiven. Confession, repentance, and forgiveness. That's the key to a healthy marriage, doing these things over and over and over and over for years, years of forgiveness. That's the key. That's the trademark of a Christian in general, married or not, right? If we forgive as we've been forgiven, that shows that the gospel has taken root in your heart, maybe more than anything else. Dave Harvey wrote an excellent book, called When Sinners Say, I Do. And he says in the book, he says, remember what Jesus said of the woman caught in adultery? Look at this, Luke chapter 7, verse 47. Jesus tells, he says, therefore I tell you, her sins, we're talking about a woman caught in adultery here, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. In other words, Dave Harvey says, if we recognize the enormity of our sin, like the Apostle Paul, seeing myself as the worst of sinners, then I understand I have been been forgiven much. That's when biblical reality begins to make sense. I start to see God as he truly is, holy and perfect. His vastness becomes bigger than my problems. His goodness comes to me even though I'm not good. And his wisdom and power are visible in the perfect ways he works to transform me from the inside out. As two people in marriage embrace this view of reality and live in accordance with it, 
their lives and marriage begin to look more and more like the picture God wants to display to a lost world. He says, until sin be bitter, marriage may not be sweet. Until sin tastes bitter in your mouth. Until you can't stand the thought of sinning against your spouse. Until it almost makes you sick. That is when marriage will really be sweet. Richard Koken again, he says the opportunity, he talks about the opportunity for marriage is such a powerful demonstration and a powerful witness for this world. You have a golden opportunity to show the world in your marriage what real forgiveness looks like, what real sacrificial love looks like. And not that we're out to, to flaunt this or, or try to wear some kind of prideful you know, thing on our sleeve and say, hey, look at our marriage, look how great we are. That's not what it's about at all. But you know what speaks to a lost world who is very confused about marriage and what it even is and what, what's the purpose of it anymore? Does it even matter? You know what speaks to that kind of world? Two Christians, a man and a woman, husband and wife, two sinners struggling together. Struggling together with their eyes on Christ, not perfect at all. Making all kinds of mistakes along the way. But struggling together, humbly striving to be obedient to the word of Christ, content in his grace. When the world sees that struggle moving to Christ for his glory, that's a healthy marriage. That's what the world needs to see. That's what you both need to experience. Instead of closing today with some practical tips for a better marriage, you can find that elsewhere. I'm not a marriage counselor and I'm not about to try to do group marriage therapy in this room right now. We're not doing that. But this is what God's word teaches us. God has a design for marriage and we feel the disconnect. Married or not, you see it in our culture. We feel it as a human race. So the challenge then is to pursue the original design. And I hope you've seen that confession and repentance and forgiveness, keeping your eyes on Christ and struggling together, that, that's the challenge. I'd rather close today with a time of prayer. And I want us to just spend a moment in prayer. And, and again, whether you're married or divorced or single or widowed, would you pray that for those who are married, if you're not, that their marriages would reflect Christ's glory and be a testament to this world? And would you pray, if you're not married, for this world, that God would show his grace to a culture who has lost the meaning of marriage and doesn't think that it even matters that much anymore? Would you, show, would you pray that the Lord would show through his church, all of us, the truth of the gospel, that we don't need other people to be happy. We need Christ for joy and everlasting salvation. So would all of us pray to that end? And if you are married here today, would you pray for your spouse that the Lord would continue to work in their heart and then pray for yourself, for your own heart, that the Lord would continue to work his grace and truth deep in your heart.